This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Seek Reality Radio with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about your reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here is Roberta. There is just one reality. Neither mainstream science nor mainstream religions can do more than give us hints about what that reality actually is because, as we know, they're both belief systems. One is atheism and one is theism, belief systems. Belief systems presuppose a conclusion. They're not a way to investigate what's real. But fortunately, we have nearly 200 years of communications from the dead that are so abundant and so consistent that we can prove now that your life is eternal. We can prove it. It's a non-belief-based fact. I learned that truth so long ago that I don't even think about it anymore other than having the thrill of knowing I'm infinitely loved and perfectly safe in everlasting arms, as are you. I know that. So now my attention is focused on other things the afterlife evidence tells us. When we study those nearly 200 years of abundant and consistent communications from the dead, we don't just learn that human life is eternal. We also get a wonderfully detailed view of what's actually going on. That view is consistent both with cutting-edge physics and with the gospel teachings of Jesus. How amazing is that? Last week, we talked with Dr. R. Craig Hogan about what the afterlife evidence in quantum physics and the teachings of Jesus, all in agreement, tell us is true of the nature of reality. This week, I'm going to tell you what the evidence altogether tells us is true about human nature. For all of history, friends, we've had it all wrong. We have not understood what we are. I'm going to talk today about what we are, also why I think we've gotten it wrong and how we can begin to fix it. Also, I'm thrilled to be able to give you a very personal announcement today. If you can't stay with me through this broadcast, when you leave, go to robertagrimes.com and you'll see that what used to be a stodgy lawyer's website has been transformed. But please, if you have the time, let's first talk about the problem because I think then my proposed solution will make more sense to you. The fact is that the only thing that exists is eternal mind, capital M, or consciousness, and that mind or consciousness is perfect love or affinity. It's, it's all good. There's no devil. I've never, and I've looked hard, I've never found any evidence that there's a devil. And we, I'll talk a little later about why I'm pretty confident that's right. But there's no time. There's no space either. The universe is essentially a mind-created illusion. And at its core is love beyond our ability to comprehend or even to imagine it. Actually, You know, the the earliest quantum physicists knew very well what they had found. I love these guys, and I feel bad for them because they talked back then about the things we're only learning now independently from dead people, and they told us all these things, frankly, while they were still alive. Max Planck was the father of quantum physics. He won the Nobel Prize for quantum physics in 1918 for developing quantum theory. 
He said in 1931, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. That's profoundly true. He said in 1944, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about atoms this much. There is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force that brings the particles of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. Max Planck said, we must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Absolutely right. Perfectly true. This is, this is the father of quantum physics. He's revered by quantum physicists, and he knew all this. He, he came at it independently from the viewpoint of science. He got to the same place that you can get if you look at it from the viewpoint of what the dead tell us is real. Physicist Sir James Jeans said, the universe begins to look more like a great thought than a great machine. And oh, was he right. So, so even the physicists knew all this. We, I, I, there, apparently there's a, book, a movie called The Matrix. I've never seen it. I, I tend not to go to movies. But I gather it's on the same theme. What the evidence tells us is that the only thing that really exists is, is like a consciousness grid, a consciousness matrix. And reality, which we think of as basically real, is suspended from that. Okay, we understand this part. We talked about it last week. I just tried to summarize it now. But now I want you to contemplate the fact that your own mind is part of that eternal mind. The afterlife evidence tells us that overwhelmingly. You are part of, if you want to call it God, God. You're part of whatever that consciousness matrix is. The only part of you that's real is your mind, and that part of you is part of that matrix, inextricably part of it. It's made of the same stuff. So therefore, you are perfectly loving, and your mind is almost infinitely creative. I'll say that again. You are perfectly loving. All you are is love. Your mind is immensely, inordinately, tremendously creative. That's boggling, don't you think? There are hints of this glorious truth about human nature in the writings of our greatest religions. The Bible tells us we're the children of God, created in God's image, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Yeah, and now the afterlife evidence, and frankly also our dear friends uh, Max Planck and Sir James Jeans also prove that that's true. It's true. So hug yourself a little for that. That's wonderful. But then think about the fact that there's tremendous evil. If God is good, if you're part of God, where the heck did all that evil come from? Well, here's the bad news. The evidence strongly suggests that our very powerful and very creative human minds created all that evil. That's right. It came from you and me. I've never found a powerful entity set in opposition to God, no devil. And that's because the evidence shows us pretty overwhelmingly that the less loving an entity is, the weaker it is. The, the most loveless entities are so weak that they can hardly function. 
But there is a lot of evil in the world. We know that's true. Apparently, all of it was created by minds. Yours, mine, all human minds. So, the hopeful thing we've learned from the afterlife evidence is that human nature is all good. You are God's best beloved child, perfectly loving and perfectly loved. That is who and what you are. That's you. A little lower than the angels, as the Bible says, crowned with glory and honor. And we can prove that now. So, okay, here are two big questions. If humankind is so darn good at our core and made of the very stuff of God, then how come we're so evil? How can we even think of even evil clearly enough to be able to create evil if we're that good? That's the first question. The second is, if we're all part of God, then we are essentially all one being. So how can we think we're so separated? This has been my puzzle in recent years. It took me a lot of time and study and thought to begin to get a glimmer of an answer to both problems, and I think that, in fact, both problems are one problem. I think the answer is, clearly, we have forgotten who and what we are. We have forgotten who and what we are. How is it possible to forget who you are? I, I think there must have been a fall. The Bible says there was a fall from God's grace in the Garden of Eden. If you don't buy that, and, and I don't buy that, there still was some sort of fall. At least the very least fall we suffered was a, was a falling away from awareness of our true nature. What and who we are. We forgot that. How is it possible? Well, let me introduce you to our friend Patrick. Patrick, until very recently, was the star of the Dallas Zoo. He was born in captivity. He lived in that zoo for 18 years. And he was a beautiful silverback gorilla, magnificent animal, star. They loved him in, in Dallas, and he loved people. But he was raised in captivity. Unfortunately, he didn't much love other gorillas. He could tolerate the male gorillas, but he would attack the female gorillas. They couldn't be anywhere near him. So this past fall, fall just ending, they finally gave up on Patrick and sent him to reform school in South Carolina where they're going to try to teach him how to be a gorilla. Think about that. Okay. If you think about it, what you begin to wonder is, all right, Patrick forgot gorilla nature. We have forgotten human nature. Maybe Patrick's problem is our problem. Perhaps we're not behaving according to our true natures because we are no more free than Patrick is. We'll get back to talking about Patrick the gorilla in a moment. Um, I think it's I think it's kind of fun to to um, contemplate having to send him to gorilla reform school, but his life isn't so much fun. He'd love to be a real gorilla, and he would lived in a great big enclosure. I mean, they tried to make it look wild, but still he wasn't wild, and that made all the difference for him. The next thing I want to kind of put into the puzzle is something I began to do in 1977. I was a young mother, um, just out of law school, but I couldn't practice law. So what I did was to think about human nature and civilization. Um, I had just come through the youth quake of the 60s. I graduated from college in 1968, right at the height of it. In fact, we didn't even finish that school year. That's how bad it was. 
And I had come to conclude that we were completely off track. Civilization was totally non-functioning. So I did something which apparently scientists do, but I didn't know that at the time. I started to do a thought experiment. Now, you can do a thought experiment pretty well, and it's, it's actually a lot easier than experimenting with real people, frankly. If there's something you know really well, you sort of set up all the parameters that you know, and you vary something, and then you try to see how it all would work. I was doing this kind of idly because uh, I had a little baby, and the baby, frankly, didn't take a lot of time, and I couldn't go practice law, and I was a little bored. I was sick of reading. I, I began it as a novel because I had always played with writing fiction. I had never really done anything serious with it. A lot of us, I think, do that. We, we enjoy writing fiction. Um, so I created a, an, a civilization, which really wasn't a civilization, that was the exact opposite, the polar opposite of the civilization that I had just been through in the 60s and the civilization I was living through in the 70s. What would it be like? Well, first, of course, the people would have to be free. It was clear to me that one of the problems we had was that our minds were so constrained by laws, by religion, by government, by taboos, by what other people think, an ab a place where people's minds could be absolutely free. Okay, but it has to be the opposite. So there, marriage would be the only thing that's permanent because, of course, marriage here is just a lark for most people. Um, I, I, otherwise, there'd be no laws or no restrictions, um, not even against harming one another, not against anything. Um, I played with it for years. It became compelling to me because, and, and there was, a, of course, a lot more detail to, to what that experiment eventually became, but it became compelling to me because no matter how I stressed it, it seemed to work. It worked amazingly well I, I and better and better uh, as it went on. Um, it, I wrote that novel probably, it, I rewrote it maybe 15 times in over five years, just playing, having fun. It was my recreation. But the time wasn't right to publish it, and frankly, it was too personal. I loved, I loved that novel. Um, and I, but then I, frankly, I was writing pretty good fiction by that point, back, right back, finally practicing law, and, uh, but still writing fiction. So what happened was that in, in the late 80s, I became serious about it. I found a wonderful editor. She's my editor today. And um, I wrote a starter novel, which the publisher, Berkeley, called Almost Perfect. It came out in 1992. Amazingly, it was translated into Chinese and sold in mainstream China. I can't get over that still. But it was about a woman entrepreneur um, and maybe they were trying to encourage that. I have no idea. But it was it was kind of fun when that happened. But pretty soon after that, I was deep into the the novel that became the novel of my heart. Um, I was browsing in a bookstore. I came across a a biography by Alf Mapp, which I recommend, called Thomas Jefferson: A Great A Strange Case of Mistaken Identity. And uh, I read it, and I loved it. I I wrote a fan letter, first one I ever wrote in my life, and became friends with Dr. Mapp. Um, but I, want, I couldn't find out anything about his marriage. He was married for 10 years, from 1772 to 1782, and he burned all their communications and apparently her journals, everything. He burned all the evidence of Martha after, after she died, and he mourned her for the rest of her life. 
Um, I've done a lot of research. Uh, none of the little rumors, people love rumors, don't they? None of the little rumors about him and other women, including Sally Hemings, are true. The father of Sally Hemings' children was his younger brother, Randolph. Um, he, he, was, he was in mourning for the rest of... So that was one heck of a marriage, wasn't it? Um, he was, he died, he was mad, widowed. She, she died, I think he was 39 when she died. And he, he mourned her forever. But I, I wanted to try to recreate that time. You know how they recreate or, or study black holes? They look at how the light is bent around them. Uh, and they can then get the shape of the, of the hole. Well, I read everything Jefferson wrote in his life before the age of 40. I studied everything he did, read everything. And looking primarily, frankly, for how the light was bent. And there was really a lot of evidence about Martha Jefferson in the first 39 years of his life. And um, I became, I just fell in love with both of them. I studied the history intensively. I studied the customs, the food, everything they did. I studied it all. And I wrote Thomas Jefferson's journal. I mean, rather, Martha Jefferson's journal. Um, I thought of it at the time as Thomas, because I, of course, was in love with him as much as she was. Uh, I was surprised when I began to get, when this was, book was published in 1993, and I began to get um, mail about it, and, uh, and because back then, of course, it was all letters, and I was amazed how much mail I got. There were a lot of people who really were taken with this book, and uh, everyone thought it was about Martha, and until then I was really surprised. I thought it was about Thomas, and he, because she was writing about, about Thomas. He was an astonishing man, enormous mind, well-read, a tremendous thinker, and he was very, he was, lived in an interesting time. He inherited slavery, um, we inherit a lot of bad things around us. We don't hold ourselves responsible for them because we inherited them. His problem was he inherited it, and he was stuck with it in his own family. As he said, we're stuck. We can either keep them enslaved or sell them to someone who will abuse them or free them, and whoever wants to do it can just take them up and enslave them again. You could not, in 18th, 18th century Virginia, you could not free a slave and have that slave have a reasonable life. I'm going to tell you a little more about Thomas Jefferson and go on to talk about why this is so important to our whole big discussion of human nature. But first, we're going to just take a brief, a brief break. This is Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back. If you're interested in communicating with the people we used to think were dead, then don't miss the 39th Annual Conference of the Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies in Scottsdale, Arizona, next July. The theme of the conference is New Developments in Afterlife Communication. Presenters from as far away as Brazil will be talking about not just mediumship, but also automatic writing and pendulum communication and the astonishing new field of self-induced direct communication with dead loved ones. Two different presenters are working on telephones that will let us communicate with the dead directly. Go to ASCSI.org now for more information. That's ASCSI.org. Join them next July and be amazed. 
When she was eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is Cliff Notes to 200 Years of Abundant and Consistent Afterlife Evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon in Kindle and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. If you'd like to talk about some of the things that are discussed on Seek Reality Radio, come and join the welcoming community at afterlifeforums.com. Roberta and Andrew manage Afterlife Forums in an atmosphere of love and acceptance. If you are very ill, if you have lost a loved one, or if you just wonder about these topics, come and join the fun at afterlifeforums.com. Welcome back. This is Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Uh, my guest this week is me, <laughs> and I'm I'm basically coming out to you as the novelist. I guess I really have always wanted to be, and I'm really becoming full time in my um, as I as I edge toward retirement. I almost said old age, but you know it's funny. You don't feel any older in your 60s than you felt in your 30s. So um, that's kind of a, a foreign phrase for me. My Thomas is the best thing I'll ever write. It was acquired right away by a very senior editor at Doubleday. It was a Book of the Month Club selection, a quality paperback book selection. It got terrific early reviews. My acquiring editor was very high on it. Everybody thought it was going to be a great success. Then my acquiring editor, who delayed it until January 20th, 1993, she delayed it coming out by a year because she wanted it to come out in the at the in the 250th anniversary of his birth and on the day that Bill Clinton was inaugurated. So it came out that day. But in the fall of that year, she took another job. Someone gave her her own imprint at another house. And Doubleday was so annoyed with her, they wouldn't let her take my novel with her, which she tried to do. And they basically orphaned it. Um, they gave me to a woman who kept telling me it'll soon be out of print. Um, seems odd, you know, to penalize a writer for something an editor did, but that's what happened. And that whole experience was so appalling, frankly. I gave up writing fiction altogether. I think of it as writer's block. I didn't write fiction, a word of it, for 20 years. Then in nineteen in twenty ten, it's funny how time goes. Time flies. In twenty ten, I published the fun of dying. I had done all that afterlife research, and I wanted people to know about what I had learned. And I discovered when I did the fun of dying in twenty ten that it was just plain fun. I owned the rights. I had control. I could play. I could make decisions. It was fun. I felt very, very good about that whole experience and still do. The book sells as well as it ever did, and thank you for that. But I, I didn't write it for the sale I, I, the sale of it. I wrote it for the joy of it. And enough people have, have 
found it helpful to them that it's been just the best, most rewarding, one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. So I was a little warmed to writing at that point. And about a year ago, in November, I rediscovered that old 1970s thought experiment novel. It had been preserved all that time, and it was on the computer I was using then, and I didn't even know it. Um, I'm still amazed that this was true. I pulled it out and read it, and it was a whole lot better as a novel than I had remembered it to be. And I could see at once what that sequel would be. The whole story, the whole 50 years or so, was right in my head. The, the, that novel began in 1976. The next one begins in 2001. So there was a little 25-year gap, and that was wonderful. I, it was great. I, could, I knew exactly what had happened to the characters during that time. And, they, and they, I carried it forward in the second novel um, to the end of 2005. Reading that old thought experiment novel, I realized, and frankly, it was the biggest head slap of my life, just why humanity is so off track. And then I began to think about how you and I might fix it. So I wrote like a bunny for a year. I was just enjoying that so much. If you're a writer, you, don't, you, you sort of write, and that's the most thrilling thing you could possibly do. For that year, and actually continuing now, um, I never saw a TV show. I never went to a movie. I never went out to dinner. Um, I never entered a store. I have a wonderfully patient husband of 41 years, and he basically took over living for me so I could just write. I still worked as a lawyer. I still had clients, but that's it. I wrote, and I, it's the best year I've ever had in my life, frankly. I love, love, love doing it, and you do it for the pure joy of it. You don't do it because you hope someone will buy it. I, I don't, frankly, I don't, need to, I don't need the money at this point. I, I, I'm ready to retire financially, but I had the joy of being in this world, which I love and which I had missed, frankly, for 25, 35 years. Last summer, my editor found what she says is the best literary publicist in the United States, and my new publicist referred me to Wheatmark in Tucson. Wheatmark is a hybrid. It's a very selective publisher. It's as selective probably as any New York publishing house, but it's built around a new model. They do all the work. I pay some of the costs up front. Of course, they don't give me a, 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 an advance. Well, the advance is useless anyway if they won't do anything with your book. In return, I get a higher royalty, but the best thing is I get to keep the rights. I own my own rights. I'll never have happened to me what happened to me with Doubleday, which frankly was, was what destroyed what could have been a writing career, but I think things work differently for a reason. I've loved working with Wheatmark. It's been, I've, I've been working with them now for, what, five or six months. It's been the most enjoyable experience of ever with any business because they consult me on everything. They make the decisions or they pretty much tell me this or that has to be a certain way. But um, they've, they've treated me as if I were uh, important to, this, to the process. It's been a wonderful collaboration. All fiction should always have been published this way because Fiction, people who write fiction are sensitive by nature. You can turn that spigot off so easily. And if you turn that off, it doesn't come back on. 
So anyone who is contemplating being a um, being a novelist, uh, save your pennies. Go to Wheatmark, or there are other. Uh, this is a whole new class of publishers. There are other publishers like them, because you still get to 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 do the same kind of novel and the same kind of release and the same kind of everything. But you don't give up control. You don't give up your rights. It makes a huge difference. So there I was writing over the course of this past year. In what I thought was at first was just my old thought experiment novel and its sequel, and I was just going to play with those. But then I came to see, you know, there are like four, maybe five novels still to be written in the series after these two. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the first two. And then, and actually, I'm writing the third, and I'm also into that, and I'll tell you a little about that too. Letter from Freedom begins in 1976, and it's my thought experiment novel. If you want a free copy, go to robertagrimes.com. You can have it for free. I'd like as many people as possible to read it because I think it's important for us to think about what life could be like for people if we lived free. What's, how does that look? How does that feel? You can find out with Letter from Freedom. And as I say, you can have it for free at robertagrimes.com. It's set in 1976, so now it's a historical novel, although I know it's historically accurate because I wrote it 35 years ago. It's set on an island in the South Atlantic called Atlantica, whose natives have been living for nearly 500 years in absolute freedom and perfect human unity without laws, without religion, without governments, without any of the trappings that we think of as civilization. It also includes a really complicated love story between an extremely wealthy young, but, but complicated young man and an extremely poor but stubborn young woman and the start of an American dynasty. Frankly, I needed the hero to be rich because I need to use the money for various things, as you'll see in um, the second novel, which is called Letter from Money. It begins in 2001. They've been estranged for a while. They have one child who has grown up in freedom. I mean, here's the premise. We have a very wealthy man who's complicated enough that he has ended up having only one child. Early 60s, the woman he loves refuses to be wealthy. His son has grown up in absolute freedom. It does work in these two novels. And when, when, they, when, when he then comes back to civilization, he says, what are you people thinking? Because he's lived where life works, and he, he's come to see where life doesn't work. And that's how Letter from Money starts. Frankly, the, the character I identify most with personally is that, is that young man, Rex, because he uh, and his father named him Rex, even though that's the worst possible insult you could give someone in a society which is perfectly free, but his father doesn't think about that. He names him after his childhood dog. Um, Letter from Money is um, the same characters 25 years later, um, this young man figuring out First, what's going on, and then what's wrong with our civilization, and then realizing he has to fix it. Because if he doesn't fix the world, his little world where he grew up is going to be destroyed by it. The only reason it's been preserved as long as it has is that it was in American private hands um, all that time, since the Civil War. Um, and there's a backstory for why the, it ended up. In, in private hands, American private hands in the Civil War. And, and his father has been protecting it all these years because his family was there. But he's got to fix the world. When we get to um, 
when we get to to Atlantica and um, and look at sort of what it's like there, we realize how fragile it is. Um, as it becomes more famous, because unfortunately, because begins to be a famous because begins to be famous that there's this freaky billionaire's son who thinks that that's a better way to live. Um, it be, it's a it's a troubling thing to everyone that this little place is not safe. If there needs to be a reason to fix the world, um, that strikes me as you know a pretty good reason. Um, I I uh, that's my home and. I want it to be safe. He left, also he left a wife and child there. It's important that they be safe. So to continue my story, over the past year I polished my old novel, I wrote a sequel, I began to see what the rest of this multi-generational generational saga would be, and I'm writing a letter from Wonder Now, which should be scheduled for release in about a year. Letter from Crisis will be two years after that, and we're going to go back to the year 1548. I'm going to show you just how a warlike culture, much more warlike even than ours, of people shipwrecked, unable to even stand to be in the same island together, was transformed in one generation to the gloriously free and spiritually united and highly stable way of living that Atlantica became. And of course, all these stories are full of love stories because that's the part I like. I get Since I get to write it, I get to uh, have a little say. And I think that the love stories uh, help to motor fiction I mean, we can write about stuff, we can write about ideas, but it's the people who are inhabiting that those ideas. Um, it's those people who are really, really important. And um, that's, so that's the fun part for me. Um, the love story on, uh, in, the, in that fourth book, Letter from Crisis, um, is, is, spe- is kind of especially interesting to me. But anyway, I won't get ahead of myself. I, I can't even begin writing that till I finish Letter from Wonder. So as you can see, uh, I'm coming out to you today. I'm a complete junkie. All I want to do is write. We came to see during the summer, of course, that my Thomas was the essential prelude to this series. I call it, we call it a prelude and not a prequel because it's different characters. It takes place 200 years before letters, letters from, letter from freedom. Um, and of course, uh, it's really, it's really about the same themes though. Think about it. It's about freedom of mind. If Thomas Jefferson was anything, he was someone who was concerned with, obsessed with personal freedom. He was the intellectual motor of the founding fathers of that generation that gave us for such a long time such a stable and free way of life. Thomas Jefferson was the motor of that. His ideas were the great ideas. Everybody from, you know, Martin Luther King, Ronald Reagan, FDR, everybody said, or Abraham Lincoln, they all said Thomas Jefferson was where they got their ideas. And, um, and his core ideas had to do with freedom. They had to do with human unity and human independence. Um, he was an ardent abolitionist. This is something many people don't understand about Jefferson, but he was um, one of the first cases he ever took was for, for someone who had been in slavery, arguing that the man had a right to be free. This was in Virginia in the 1760s. Um, he was he he hated slavery. He kept slaves because he didn't have a choice. He inherited the the slaves, and he didn't want to sell them because he was afraid they'd be mistreated. So he treated them extremely well, 
and he did, he didn't allow them to be mistreated, gave them you know Sundays off and often Saturdays off, and uh, they were basically raising their own food. He bought much of the the produce that his own family consumed from his slaves. He didn't just take it; he bought it from them. He ran account books that exist today with his slaves. Very different view of slavery than than we would have. His household servants were his wife's half-siblings. A whole family um, uh, of Betty Hemings was the mother and, and was um, a beloved stepmother to, um, to Martha. Her, she had been Martha's father's concubine when he gave up. She was half-white. When he gave up, uh, uh, after his third wife died, he gave up getting married. He started sleeping with Betty and he had six children with her and she had had four previously and she ended up having two more so she was very prolific herself but um, Betty brought her family to live with the Jeffersons and um, that the relationships there were intense family relationships the children were only one quarter black and they were beloved clearly beloved by and cared for by the Jeffersons all their lives. Um, but it certainly made them think about slavery and how to end it. Jefferson's writings suggest strongly that if Martha had lived, he retired in 1781. His writings suggest strongly that if she had lived, they would have made slavery their one big cause. And they, he was already figure, trying to figure out how to end it in a way that would not give us what we ended up with, which was a mess, but how to end it in a way that, that uh, people who had been enslaved would have the chance to be free and independent and the, the, the white and black could come together naturally, which he thought was much, more, much, more, much better than what he saw in cities where the, even if slaves were able to live free and be free and become freedmen, uh, they still lived horribly. And he, he, was, he was very disturbed about all of that. Then his wife died, and uh, the, the year after he retired, and he left Virginia, was didn't come back for nearly 10 years. And uh, he, all the things that he would have done with her, uh, he didn't do. He was Thomas Jefferson was in many ways a broken man for the rest of his life. And um, I think that, therefore, the fact that people don't know anything about his marriage, and I've tried to reconstruct it as best I can, but if, since, since people don't know much about his marriage, it becomes hard to understand the man when his wife, he told us till his dying day, his wife was central to his life. She was the cherished companion of his life. He called the Revolutionary War period 10 years of uncheckered happiness. Now that is one heck of a marriage. So my publisher wanted me to get the rights back, and I had a lot of trouble doing it. Actually, I was surprised they wanted to me to they wanted me to leave the book with them and let them make an ebook. I said, no, no, no. I finally found a wonderful um, attorney there who got the rights back for me very well. So in January of 2014, Wheatmark will be issuing three novels together as part of a seven novel series called Letters from Love. And with that note, I'll tell you more about the novels and, and what we're doing with them when, when I come back. This is Roberta Grimes. I am your host and your guest. I'm a twofer today, and we'll be right back. When she was eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. 
She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is Cliff Notes to 200 Years of Abundant and Consistent Afterlife Evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon in Kindle and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. If you're interested in communicating with the people we used to think were dead, then don't miss the 39th Annual Conference of the Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies in Scottsdale, Arizona, next July. The theme of the conference is New Developments in Afterlife Communication. Presenters from as far away as Brazil will be talking about not just mediumship, but also automatic writing and pendulum communication and the astonishing new field of self-induced direct communication with dead loved ones. Two different presenters are working on telephones that will let us communicate with the dead directly. Go to ASCSI.org now for more information. That's ASCSI.org. Join them next July and be amazed. Welcome back. I'm Roberta Grimes. This is the Contact Talk Radio Network. This is Seek Reality, but the reality we're seeking today is my particular reality, um, which is the fact that uh, I'm actually a novelist, and I am in the process of doing three novels as part of a seven-novel series. Um, they'll, they'll be available at bookstores everywhere through Ingram. Um, if it, your Amazon is probably the easiest way to get them. They'll be available in a lot of different um, Kindle formats as well. We expect that they will be issued in January, but I still haven't been able to find out the, the date. So just watch Amazon um, or watch my website, robertagrimes.com, and we'll keep you informed. I know from its great reviews you're going to like My Thomas. It's a historical novel. It's a great love story. Oh, I could never have made it up. Um, it's, it's a love story with complications that Frankly, when I reread it again um, prior to putting it putting it back with um, Wheatmark, uh, I, I I cringed at some of it. She had horrible health problems, which ended up in her death. And um, watching how she, they, the family had to accommodate to her health problems, and the fact that he loved her no matter what happened. What a man! Um, watching all of that was painful for me. But I think it hasn't been painful for other people. Uh, if you if you read any of these novels, you'll see some of the reviews that my Thomas got put into the front of them, and and you'll uh, you'll see it has been very well loved. Um, and it's I think very timely now for us to be talking about Thomas Jefferson. I think you'll like Letter from Freedom and Letter from Money as a as a fantasy that isn't a fantasy because if you've done the same reading I've done, you know that it's very likely people do have the mental powers 
that the people develop on Atlantica. Um, but it's just that we're so constrained that we don't have the chance to develop them. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, I've worked, because of the fact that I've been so involved in the afterlife community, I've worked with a lot of mediums. And uh, it's clear to me now that we all have tremendous latent mental abilities that we don't even attempt to develop. And the way that they develop, develop them really requires that they get away from the constraints that we put on our minds. A chained mind is a helpless mind. A chained mind is a mind that can easily imagine in its frustration evil, just the way Patrick the gorilla attacked females when he should have been doing the opposite with the females. Um, you, you can't be yourself if you are chained. And you can't know who you are if you've never had a moment of freedom. And no human being on this earth for the past thousand, fifteen hundred generations has ever known a moment of freedom. Think about that. These books are meant to be fun, and you could read them independently and out of order. Each of them is a complete novel. My wonderful editor has insisted on that. Um, I, I tend to think of them as a young adult fantasy and romance series for grown-ups. That same kind of thing. Um, my 12-year-old grandson is so into these novels. And they're thick. I can't believe 12-year-olds read novels so thick. These are not that thick. These are only 350 pages, more or less. Um, but they're, they're meant to be fun. They're meant to be easy, enjoyable, thoughtful, romantic, kind of exciting fun. Um, but they also give us a way to begin to ask whether perhaps humanity has spent the past 1,500 generations in that miserable cage with poor Patrick the gorilla. Is it possible that's really our core problem? I think it's time to at least ask the question. Because think about this. Can you honestly say that civilization has made us any more civilized individually as people? No. You can't say that because it hasn't. It has given us constraints. We've got laws. We've got governments. We've got religions. We've got taboos. We've got customs. We've got people who will look at you funny. So we have a lot of constraints that keep us in line. But it's all basically still the novel animal farm, isn't it? We think human nature is evil because that's how we act when we take the chains off. But maybe those chains were really the problem. Maybe it's civilization that's the problem, and maybe it's not the solution. I think the, what the most interesting thing for me as I conducted my thought experiment was that eventually people living in, in perfect freedom, no, well, A, they were very happy. Oh, my goodness, were they happy immediately because nothing's forbidden. You can do whatever you want. Nobody looks at you funny. Imagine a life like that. But they did get develop these extraordinary mental powers. My publicist absolutely says they have to be marketed as fantasy. Um, letter from freedom and letter from money. I said, they're not fantasy. I think that's really what would happen. And she said, the reason they work is that they, that's what would happen, but they read like fantasy. So I said, okay, whatever is going to help people who will enjoy them, find them. That's fine. But we know there's that consciousness matrix, right? And it's the only thing that exists. 
I, I read you the quotations from Max Planck right in the beginning, and um, he said it pretty clearly, and he was a physicist to end all physicists. I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. That's Max Planck. What seems to develop on the island in this experimental culture is that they, as they develop ever more freedom of mind, they are tapping into and interacting with the matrix of minds. I don't understand how that would work, but it makes sense to me that it probably would. Just as I see people who develop their psychic powers and how they're able to tap into something. Um, but they're still, of course, in chains. They're only a little bit free. Their minds are still largely constrained. If you took every bit of constraint off a mind, it could probably tap very, very well into the consciousness matrix that it's a part of anyway. The more I did my afterlife research, the more I understood the mental powers that my experimental people, thought experiment, I don't understand why it works, but it does, the more I understood what it was they had developed, um, seemingly on their own. It, it's weird, I know, but please trust me on this and read the, you can get the novel for free, so why not read it? Uh, RobertaGrimes.com. Um, it works on Atlantica. Freedom of mind works. I've come to believe that our core problem in this world is that there is no freedom of mind. That's the core freedom. If we don't have that, um, we're not going to... You know, what, what, what do you really have if you're not free in your mind? You don't have anything. Letter from Wonder, which I'm working on now, um, is will be Rex's experiment to see whether Americans can develop the same freedom of mind. Um, he does it big. As I say, Daddy has money so we could spend the money. That's the reason I made a rich guy the, the original hero of this series. But is, is civilization a detour? Is it possible, and this is the core question I'd ask you and ask you to think about, is it possible that laws, constraints, Taboos, customs, people who look at you funny, knowing that there's a right and wrong about everything you do, religions. Is it possible that all these things have so constrained our minds that we're basically in a zoo like Patrick? The bars are all there. And is it possible that in that zoo it's impossible for us to live consistently with our true human nature? I think that's what the problem is. Civilization may have been a detour. I have no idea. It may have been a random bad idea that got out of got out of hand. I don't know. And I'm not giving you an answer, but I'm saying that it's past time we asked the question because all these generations of civilization right back to the Cro-Magnons have not made us one whit more civilized as people. They've not improved us at all. If that's the case, maybe, you know, maybe it's time for us to start thinking about doing it a different way. I'm not sure how you would get there from here, but I think just even experimenting with the possibility that that's what's going on would be helpful because if we come to understand that people 
not only are happier, but they they're they're they work together better, play together better. They're more united. Um, everything everything works better when we have personal freedom of mind. That will enormously change our cultural institutions because right now we figure, I mean, for example, religions figure they've got to put us put all kinds of, of constraints on our minds because otherwise we're going to be nasty and evil. What if it's those constraints that are making us nasty and evil? What if we are what the Bible says we are, which is in God's image? What if those constraints are the problem and not not the solution? I'm going to do a segment on seek reality at one point, and I'm going to talk about the ways in which I think that um, Jesus was talking about these very things. Is it possible for you and me and all the people of the world to be completely and powerfully free? Well, I guess I would ask you, why not? Robert F. Kennedy and several others have said, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Dear friends, at this point, we've tried about everything else. I think it's long past time for us to live as the glorious beings of love and light, the perfectly good, perfectly loving, true children of God that we, all, we know we are at our core. So please read my novels for the fun of them. Please let me know what you think of them. Give me suggestions, because remember, this series goes on for another 10 or 12 years, so I'll be happy to get your suggestions. But please think about the possibility that freedom of mind is essential to our being, able to, ex- to live and express ourselves as human beings. And if we have that freedom of mind, we'll stop creating evil. If the evil comes from us, we've got to turn that spigot off. And the only way to do it is for us to begin to live as what we are, beings of light on earth, not just in heaven. Because when we get, of course, when we get there immediately, that's what we are. But we can do it here. And I think we'd better do it because otherwise we are going to get nowhere, friends. So thank you for listening. If you've stayed with me, thank you. I've just, I just needed to kind of get all this out. I've thought about it for a long time. Um, now we're coming up close to the end of, of our time together this time. Um, I'm Roberta Grimes. My books are The Fun of Dying. Notice books S are The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next, and that's on Amazon. Soon to come will be My Thomas, Letter for free- from Freedom, and Letter from Money, and they'll be available on Amazon and at bookstores everywhere and also as ebooks in about a million places. I didn't know there were so many ways to get an ebook. Go to robertagrimes.com for more information and also go there to download a free copy of Letter from Freedom. Let me say that one more time. If you go to robertagrimes.com, you can right now pick up a free copy of my new novel, which is Letter from Freedom, and be ready to read Letter from Money when it comes out. Please join us next week. Our guest will be Suzanne Geisman, who's an extraordinary medium, and she's a keynote speaker at the 39th Annual Academy for Spiritual and Consciousness Studies Conference in July. You're going to love her. She's delightful. So don't forget to join us next week. Meanwhile, visit us at afterlifeforums.com and join the discussion there. And now, go out and enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are an eternal being and you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, joyous conversations about your eternal life. 
To learn more, tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. For lively and positive discussions, visit www.afterlifeforums.com. To contact Roberta, email her at roberta at seekreality.com. Wishing you a productive week empowered by the truth of who you really are.